0: up on Tech Nation, I'll speak with Dr. Mitch Prinstein, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. There's a science to being popular and a proven path to likability. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft brings 3D printing into healthcare. There's a lot of value there, far more than printing cute little widgets just for fun. And Dr. Serge Saxonov, CEO of 10X Genomics, explains how our current technology for decoding our genomes has its limits and how it can be approved upon. All this, coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: you got to feel a little sorry for the Pope. I mean, for centuries, popes have been special, revered, blessed, and until recently, pretty much sequestered in Rome. Who knows if one snuck out for pasta and chianti, as the paparazzi didn't exist until there were cameras and newspapers. And now, of course, digital photography and the Internet the Pope was far away untouched and untouchable. Periodically, he would come out to his balcony above the crowd gathered in St. Peter's Square. But it was not until recently that Popes actually traveled to other countries, said Mass with tens of thousands in large athletic stadiums and traveled over the Golden Gate Bridge and through the city in his Popemobile. Now that was exciting. And boy, he must have been in a hurry. The Popemobile was going at quite a clip down Geary Boulevard. Still, we saw the Pope all right. That is, if you didn't blink. Of course, that was then, and this is now. And the digital age has come to the Vatican. Popes are photographed by thousands, and the Church's significant written instructions to Catholics everywhere are translated into multiple languages and published on the Internet. But Pope Francis is not entirely happy with all this. You see, as Pope Francis is saying Mass, he looks out at the assemblage, and what does he see? He sees smartphones held up by disembodied arms, holding them up above the crowd, jockeying for an unimpaired view. A whole sea of them. And why does this bother him? Because he's performing a sacred rite. It's not a performance. It's a religious ceremony. He's saying mass for and with the people assembled. It's intended that they worship together. But boy, it's hard when you finally got close enough to someone who you never thought you would see in your whole life. My mother didn't have a smartphone when Pope John Paul II came to San Francisco. But she did manage to touch his robe as his assemblage walked past her on their way up to the impromptu altar in Candlestick Park. I guess she couldn't help herself. Besides, no one in the 70,000 people in attendance seemed to notice their attention apparently fixed on the giant jumbotron. To tell you the truth, I think only a few will put their phones away. But there's a real lesson here. I used to take a lot of pictures on trips, but I found myself spending all my energy taking pictures and not taking in the experience. What do I feel? What do I notice? What does this remind me of? What have I suddenly remembered? What does this tell me about my life? The sheer ability of your mind to take you to other places on so many levels is enormous, but not if you're intensely engaged in taking pictures of everything. Even if you set deliberate boundaries, others know that you take good pictures and say, Take that, or did you get that? or any number of other related activities. You don't want to be the photographer of your life. You want to be the liver of your life. Still, I can't get that image of the Jumbotron out of my mind. How soon thereafter, the 49ers took to the field. But images, both still and moving, are fleeting. And while it's great to return to them, authentic experience stays with you in a much more nuanced way. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Mitch Prinstein about his NIH sponsored research on popularity and his new book, Popular the power of likability in a status-obsessed world. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about how 3D printing can change healthcare, care. And Serge Saxonoff from 10X Genomics tells us how decoding our genomes can get better, faster, and cheaper and give us more insight into our DNA and who we are. Mitch Prinstein's book, Popular, is full of insightful quotes, including one from Yogi Berra. Yogi said, anyone who is popular is bound to be disliked.
2: Yeah, he really was. Yogi uh, was probably thinking about the two types of popularity that we figured out in psychology now. Um, There's being likable and there's having high status and they're very, very different.
0: Now, definitive likable, Will Rogers. Now, many of our listeners may not even remember him. Maybe you don't even remember him. But this was like the the cowboy, and he started the Will Rogers Foundation, which is with us today. And uh, this is the most likable guy in the world. But he wasn't someone in a sense, of high status, and that he never had to get things done. He had didn't have big power. He didn't have anything like that.
2: Yeah, sometimes the people who have the highest likability are focused on making other people feel good and making a contribution. People want to spend time with likable people, but that's very different than status. People who are high in status tend to have a lot of power and influence. Everyone knows them. People want to be like them but they don't actually enjoy spending time with them a lot of the the time. In fact, the highest status people very often are quite disliked. In fact, you say
0: only about 35% of those with high status are actually also likable.
2: That's right. It's really hard to be both. It's hard to have high status and also to be really likable. In fact, when you talk with celebrities or others who have really high status in government or in business, they're some of the loneliest people that you'll meet because they feel that in order to maintain that high level of status, they have to put forward an image of themselves that makes it hard for anyone to really get to know them and feel really close to them. So they end up really craving likability.
0: Give us some examples of people with high status, some of whom are likable and some of whom are not.
2: Well, I mean, you. Can Besides think
0: endangering about, so... your career, Mitch. <laughs> That's right.
2: <laughs> I mean, you can really think about some of those very high-status people that we all know, um, but we want to copy them, but we don't necessarily know them very well. High-status people are often uh, Kim Kardashian or Donald Trump or even Hillary Clinton, people that have a lot of power, uh, but we don't know them very well. And if we do, we may not like them very much. Of course, the people who are really likable We might not know them at all. Uh, They might be anonymous to us because they don't have the national visibility. Um, Even within their own communities, they may have some visibility, but they're more well known for being people who care and connect with others. What is it that makes humans
0: so attracted to popularity?
2: Well, you know, it's really amazing. We didn't know until very recently just how much we are built to crave popularity, It probably all started around 60,000 years ago when we (laughs) were a species that was not the only human species, uh, human-like species on the planet. There were others, but somehow it was us that survived. And when anthropologists have looked at that, they've discovered that one of the things that we had that no one else did was our ability to form language. And that immediately made us a social species. As a social species... We are really able to protect one another and help one another, work together as a herd. All these years later now, what we realize is that the moment that we lose our standing in the herd—in fact, we don't even have to lose our standing. Just the thought that we might lose our popularity triggers these immediate responses in our brain and even within our DNA— I was shocked by some of the
0: findings. Um, But there's at least two kinds of popularity, as you say likability and status. And at different ages, they mean different
2: things to us. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, even three year olds can tell you who the most popular kids are in their class. They might not use the word popularity, but what they're referring to are the kids who are the most well liked. Those are kids that are good at sharing, they're kind. They care about others' feelings. They're also leaders. They tend to kind of rule the playgroups, but they don't do it in a very obvious way. They read the group and they move the group from within. That's very, very different from status. Status emerges as a form of popularity right at the pubertal transition, and there's reason for that. But it's at that point that we suddenly have a different kind of popularity, the one we all remember from high school probably, who was cool and visible and who were the ones we wanted to copy, and we really wanted them to pay attention to us.
0: When you're looking at groups and trying to assess popularity, I was surprised. I thought it was more like popular and unpopular, but you've got accepted, rejected, neglected, controversial, and then just average
2: Yeah, that's right. The likability groups fall into those five categories, and what we find is that what category you fell in when you were young tends to remain pretty stable all the way through school. And when we enter our new communities as adults, uh, after college, in our workplace, those same groups reemerge. And often the one you were in as a child is the one you're still in now, has pretty big implications for a whole different area a whole bunch of different areas of our life
0: Well, I was very interested in how you study popularity scientifically and and you give us many different studies uh, throughout the book. One study involved a multiplayer video game situation and an fMRI machine, which means they can see your what 's going on in your brain while you're playing the game uh, and it 's called cyberball. Let's talk about that one.
2: Yeah, Cyberball is a really clever game, and in research by Naomi Eisenberger at UCLA, they wanted to see what happens in the brain at the moment you feel rejected. And the way that they did that was, in this game, having what looks like two other people playing a a game of catch with you, a third person, playing. And for a while, the ball gets traded between you and the other players, but at some point, the other players seem to stop throwing the ball to you. So you just sit and watch while the ball goes back and forth between the other players, and you've been left out. Well, What was amazing about Naomi's research is, as soon as that happened, within just a few minutes, they found a part of the brain light up that they had no idea what was going to respond. And it was the part of the brain that lights up when we experience pain, actual physical pain. So the moment that we're excluded, we experience what's called a social pain response. Now, it doesn't hurt or sting or burn. It's not the sensory part of pain, but it's the part of our brain that sends the most dramatic alarm signal that we have to say, whatever you're doing, stop it and do something else because you're in grave danger. That's how important popularity and our inclusion is to us so social pain and physical pain occupy the same territory yeah, it's amazing in fact, other research has found that those people who are the most sensitive to physical pain are also the most sensitive to social pain, and they've even found that after a breakup, people feel better after taking a Tylenol. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
0: I never knew that when I had any breakups, but I wish I had. It would have been helpful. It sure. helps. Style <laughs> it all helps. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> now, this is beyond just, oh, it's in this center and you feel physical pain on on rejection or exclusion. I was surprised to learn in your book that it can affect our cells and the way our cells operate on DNA, if you will.
2: Yeah, this has been really surprising new information. It's suggesting that the minute that we think about social exclusion, our cells prepare our body for injury. And the reason why is because back in the day, maybe 60,000 years ago, if you were kicked out of the herd, your risk of getting eaten by a woolly mammoth or something would have increased dramatically. And when that happened, your body would need to respond by fighting off bacterial infection, right, healing the wound after your arm's been ripped off. Well, it turns out, That's exactly what our bodies are still doing today. So we experience rejection, and our cells literally, inside the cell, our DNA reorients in position, pushing dormant genes to the center where they get activated and turning on this inflammation response. This is all really helpful and protective if you really do live in a place where you might get eaten by woolly mammoths, but today... Of course, we don't need that, but our body still responds that way. And what kind of response does that engender? Well, there are two things that happen. The first is that this inflammation response changes our body's immunity. Um, It increases an inflammation and creates a risk for inflammatory disorders. And that's a major cause for a lot of the different diseases that humans suffer from now. But the second thing that it does, which is really interesting, is that it shuts down our viral immunity. Because if you're being kicked out of the herd, who are you going to catch a cold from? So to conserve energy, some genes get turned off, and it makes us more susceptible to viruses. In other words, today, after social exclusion, you're more likely to get a cold. (laughs)
0: From your, what is it, your bounce-back relationship? I don't know. (laughs) know. I'm working with this here. Maybe. It could be true.
2: There might be a variety of viruses you don't want to get in that relationship. That
0: that would absolutely be true. Now, there are also (laughs) physiological changes related to the hormone oxytocin and the neurotransmitter dopamine. Now, is that when you're popular or you're accepted versus when you're rejected?
2: Well, that actually happens to all of us, and it's what makes popularity such a big deal when we're about 13 or 14. Because it's around the time that we are developing pubertally that our brain gets a head start and prepares us to be interested in our peers. And that kind of makes sense. When you're around that age, especially if you think thousands of years ago, you needed to start to be able to fend for yourself. So the brain very cleverly is designed to make you think that your parents are completely lame when you're around 13 or 14 (laughs) and make you far more excited about your peers. And the way that it does that is it increases our receptors for dopamine and oxytocin, as you say. So it gives us lots of rewarding response for anything that's social and connected to our peers. And that's why you see so many tweens not want to spend time with their parents and really be excited about having their peers interested in them.
0: Aren't those the same physiological elements that are involved with uh, many of our, our recreational drugs?
2: Yeah, exactly. If you ever thought that social media was really addictive, that might be exactly what's going on.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn and my guest today is Dr. Mitch Prinstein. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and he's been conducting research on popularity and peer relations for nearly two decades, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute of Child and Human Development, and others, producing over 100 scientific journal articles. He's here today with popular the power Power of likability in a status obsessed world. Now you talk about how popularity early on is a predictor for success as an adult um, but you weren't popular in high school
2: <laughs> No, I did not have high status that's for sure. I was short statured with bifocals and I was pretty geeky, so there was no hope for me um i I think that I was pretty likable or at least not super dislike disliked, and that ended up playing a pretty important role as it does for everyone. Likeability opens doors.
0: Well, the likability part, I mean, you you list a number of things that make you likable. I mean, you have to be well-adjusted and often in a good mood. You have to be smart, but not too smart. I mean, you've gone on to be a, a successful professor and researcher. You know, you kind of fit in the too smart range here.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but it is really interesting and a bit of a shame how hard it is for really smart folks When it comes to popularity because the world changes right out from under them when they're young their teachers tend to really like those smart precocious children and because in young ages we really like and care about what our adults think in our lives if the teachers like you then all the other kids like you but we can all remember that once you get to middle school and high school the last thing you want is to be doing anything that makes it seem like you're kissing up to the adults. So those kids who are still trying really hard and they're seeming to be really smart, they immediately become the biggest nerds out there. And it's interesting that there's been some research that shows that if you're very smart and you say that you kind of got good grades by accident, you can still be cool and you can still have some popularity. But it's those kids that don't realize that doing what the adults tell them to do makes them supremely uncool that tend to go from the most popular to the biggest geeks in high school.
0: You know, I went to my grade school reunion, and I mean, I was clueless about this. I went to my grade school reunion, and uh, they said, Bring all your memorabilia. And I happened to have a report card from the fourth grade. And in, in, those, in that school, in those days, you had percentages that they gave you, you know. And I said, Hey, here's my report card. And it had all these gold stars on it, and it had all these hundred percents. And this guy looks at me, he goes, what are you? A rocket scientist? And turns around. <laughs> he just was like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Well, I don't know. I just found my report card. You know, I don't know." Right. <laughs> this guy, he wouldn't talk to me for the rest of the reunion. I kept going up, saying, "Hi." <laughs> no, no, I want nothing to do with you because <laughs> he just didn't know how it made him feel. People were like, "Did you really get those?" As like, I didn't manufacture this. This is the report card, you know. And but you were right. I mean who got it you know it's like even that this translates into reactions as an adult and and, then but it also you make you make a list of other things like make sure others speak uh be creative especially in so socially awkward situations and very importantly possibly most important don't disrupt the group
2: Yeah. I mean, there are so many different recipes for being likable. And and thankfully, not everyone is likable in the exact same way. But there are some really clear ways to ruin your reputation pretty quickly (laughs) in terms of likability. And and when we talk about disrupting the group, it's not that you have to be a conformist and follow what everyone does, but you have to respect the group process. You have to understand that there are group norms, and if you violate them too egregiously – then it's easier for them to kick you out than to change the entire group just to fit you in. So that's a really easy way of becoming very unlikable, is to try and dominate and overtake an entire group. Well,
0: you don't have to be in the workforce too long before you have the 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 people that interviewed you and hired you. They're long gone. <laughs> things have been moved around. Uh, things got bought. Uh, uh, products got produced, and now they're producing something else. Priorities change, and one of the problems that happen in the adult sector from time to time is you get put either temporarily or situationally, but you know by no choice of your own into a department, say, or group where the manager doesn't like you, the leaders, you know, of the, of the people who work there, they don't really like you, and there you are trying to do your job, and nobody likes you. This is tough.
2: Yeah, it is, and it, it, it's amazing how much these things take us back to those experiences we had growing up sometimes. You know, these dynamics, they look a little bit different on the surface, but they're not all that different. One of the things that we see is that some of those past experiences, they continue to play out in situations like the one you describe because we tend to use as a filter or a lens our observations of everything in front of us being biased by the things that happened to us back when we were in high school. Well, that's true, but now you can
0: say that intellectually. You can know that, but now you're in this situation, and you are going to be suffering physiologically from being there, right?
2: You can, but a lot of people tend to find that in order to get past that sense that they're disliked, they try and go for power, they try and go for status, and that tends to be a very bad tactic. Because the very things that get you high status, like aggression, are the things that will make you more disliked. So it's important that we kind of listen to those temptations towards popularity and we really pick the kind of popularity that is ultimately going to have the better long-term outcomes. If you feel disliked, it's good to start small with just a couple of people and find common ground. Research shows that asking questions is one of the most powerful ways to increase your likability over time.
0: You don't know all the answers. Therefore, you're not too smart. That's right. I like it a lot. (laughs) Now, you made just almost an offhanded comment in the middle of something about uh, women in authority that they did experience significant dislike, which is kind of... You know, it's like you're saying, hey, expect it almost.
2: Yeah, the relationship between status and likability unfortunately really penalizes females more than males. Because back in high school, again, the relationship between those two forms of popularity is actually modest for males, but it is practically non existent for females. In other words, the highest status girls, those alpha girls, tend to also be very, very disliked, often by other females. So it kind of provides this template that's really unfortunate for women that says if you want to have high status, it might be that you have to give up your likability to do so. And that doesn't have to be the case. In fact, the more support that we can give high status women, the easier it might be to embrace both status and likability. But That's not the template we were all introduced to back in high school. You just dropped something
0: there. It's like we're thinking that the guys don't like us because we're too smart or we're an authority. And you're saying, but even other women don't like you.
2: Yeah, it's true. What our studies find is that girls look at the highest status uh, fellow girls in their school and they envy them.
0: I'm speaking with University of North Carolina professor Dr. Mitch Prinstein, the author of Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation, BiotechNation, and TechNation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on TechNation Health, our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, talks about the real possibilities for 3D printers in healthcare, and Serge Saxonoff from 10x Genomics describes why the underlying technology currently decoding our genomes can get better, faster, and cheaper. Stay with us. are listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with psychology and neuroscience professor Mitch Prinstein. His book is Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. You just dropped something there. It's like, we're thinking that the guys don't like us because we're too smart or we're an authority. And you're saying, but even other women don't like you.
2: Yeah, it's true. What our studies find is that Girls look at the highest status uh, fellow girls in their school, and they envy them. And the reason why they might envy them even more than the boys envy the high-status boys is that our society, fair or not, does place this expectation on females to be good at social relationships. That's part of the the stereotype, in a way. So girls look at these high-status peers, the alpha girls, And at least at that very formative age, when their identities are also being developed, they think, this is who I want to be. Well, there are some women who grow up continuing to look like that physically attractive, socially shrewd, somewhat aggressive, high, powerful status person for the rest of their lives, comparing themselves to that 14-year-old popular girl and forever feeling short. And that's completely unfair. And that's Not a healthy way to be, but unfortunately our society puts that upon some women and it makes it an impossible standard to try and live up to. So we have some women who are pushing themselves, pushing
0: themselves to try to catch up with the really smart girl and the high status girl uh, at those lower grades. The other gals back then who were looking up to her and feeling less, still feel less when
2: they take a look at her. And it's this perpetual cycle of everyone racing to gain more popularity and more status, but everyone secretly feeling like they don't measure up and being really sensitive to the potential of social rejection. You know, by the age of 25, one out of every 10 women in the United States experiences a major depressive episode. 10%! That's really, really high. And many women will report that the precipitant for their depression... Was social stress, and
0: juxtapose that with the fact that we're raising our girls, and we're telling them, "You can be the best. There's no reason to hide being smart. There's no reason to hide your accomplishments. Go for the gold. You know, really get out there." And it's like it needs to kind of be tempered with what the what the whole situation is that you're trying to raise, uh, both our girls and our boys in.
2: Absolutely. And I think that some of the relief could really come from recognizing that that pursuit of popularity would be far better if it was focused on likability and not status, especially when you look at some of the role models out there now, particularly for adolescent girls, they're looking at folks who are talked about in terms of the number of their Twitter or Instagram followers. It sends this message that your value as a human being can be measured in social media hits, and that's really unfortunate because that's not the kind of popularity that leads to long-term outcomes. In fact, exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite, as you point out, and yet when we look at
0: that, we, I can also see people going, okay, great, now I'm going to put that on my checklist, I'm going to be checking all of this, and it turns out that overparenting, helicopter
2: parents, boy, that is a big predictor for unpopularity. Yeah, that's right. You know, one of the things that's interesting is that parents can play a really big role in helping their kids' popularity, but they have to do it just right, which means you don't want to overboard, but you also don't want to assume that parents have no control either. In the book, we talk about the ways to be very sensitive to the kid's age and developmental level. In fact, research has found that the same behaviors that will help a three-year-old do well with his or her peers, are exactly the wrong behaviors when that same child gets to be five. It's a concept that's called scaffolding. You want to provide the right amount of support so your child can stand on their own along with peers, but not too much support. And as soon as it looks like your child is doing well, you withdraw those supports little by little. The big problem is when you find those super overprotective parents when their kids have gotten well past the age when they need it. And yes, that is a very big predictor of which kids go on to be victimized by their peers.
0: How serious into adulthood is this unpopularity? How serious is it really?
2: Well, the risks of unpopularity affect us in so many different ways that when I first started doing this research, I didn't even realize It affects what jobs we get, how much we make at those jobs, the quality of our relationships with our partners and with our own children. It affects the level of popularity of those children and how our children will go on to become parents themselves. And as we've talked about, it also affects our physical health so strongly that a meta-analysis demonstrated that the effects of unpopularity on our mortality— are only met by the effects of smoking on our health. That's how powerful it can be. I'm
0: wondering as well with our, with our kids today, it's like we can talk about this, make a plan. When we were growing up, we didn't have today's social media. This is a brave mm-hmm. new world. So we can't just be saying, well, we'll be, be nice and here are the elements and try to develop it. Social media is a whole animal in itself.
2: It is completely different, and most of us have no idea what it's like to be a teenager now because this isn't what we experienced. But it's important for parents to know there are preteen magazines that regularly provide not just encouragement but instructions on how to become what they call social media famous. There are cosmetics companies that now produce makeup to help kids look good in their selfie pictures. This is a Brave New World, and it's one where almost everyone is giving kids the message that their social media following is worth investing a tremendous amount of time and their esteem into. Of course, you know, here in the United States, um,
0: social media, access to all this electronics, um, you know, this is ubiquitous here, basically. Um, And as well as we're sort of a conglomeration of many cultures. Uh, Are you mostly talking about the U.S.? Is it different in other cultures?
2: You know, it turns out it's remarkably similar in many different kinds of cultures because the access to social media and the Internet is is so ubiquitous now. But there is a difference that I think does not cross cultures as clearly, and that is the difference between status and likability. In our own research, we did some work um, in China, and what we found was that there was not the same distinction between status and likability in China as there was here in Western culture. And in fact, here we found that the more aggressive kids were, the higher their status over time. But in China, just the opposite. The more aggressive kids were, they lost ground in popularity so there's something about the me culture and the self focused culture self promoting kind of tendencies that we have in the West that's probably a part of the story
0: well, we've really got to watch this because as they grow up, they've got to learn some different skills here
2: yeah, I mean, social media is not all bad. there are a lot of good things that can come from it, especially for kids, so certainly the message is not to get your kids off of social media but Sometimes parents might find themselves bragging in front of their children about how many likes they got, or they might be talking about how much someone had power or influence at work, or they might not be talking with their kids or rewarding their kids when they've done something to help others or they've really attended to someone else's feelings. I think all those are missed opportunities. Those are all chances when we could be reminding kids that being likable is really worthwhile. And up until about 20 years ago, it had been a major goal of our culture for centuries. But all of this has changed really, really rapidly. Um, and that's a, an important time to stop and think, I, I believe. Well, Mitch,
0: I'm really sorry about that you were unpopular in high school. and I hope, <laughs> I hope you'll forgive me for my gold stars and 100 percents in the fourth grade. It Looks like you, you'll talk to me another time, I hope. And, and I sure hope you come back and talk to us again.
2: Oh, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
0: My guest today is Dr. Mitch Prinstein. The book is Popular, The Power of Likeability in a Status-Obsessed World. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to TechNation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies. Today we'll hear from our chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, about the wide range of options 3D printing offers in healthcare. And we'll also learn how the underlying technology currently decoding our genomes is getting better, faster, and cheaper. Most of us have seen the tiny widgets that 3D printers produce. But are they really making a difference in our lives? Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft offers us an in-depth view at 3D printers and health care.
3: Well, it's another area that's moving quickly. It's not even a new technology. It was invented decades ago, but it's been improving sort of exponentially to the point where it's becoming quite magical. It's often often also called digital manufacturing, that the idea that you can design something on a computer, even without much technical skills, send that to a quote-unquote printer, and instead of ink, it uses different forms of metal or plastic or even combinations, even the ability to print electronics together, even printing buildings today. But the kind of meta concept is you can design something in your imagination on a computer Three dimensions, hit print and print that structure. And what's amazing about 3D printing is sort of the complexity is free. You can make very complex parts. You can uh, print out a working ratchet or a medical device that can be implanted in the body. So lots of potential and it's starting to hit healthcare in a variety of ways.
0: Now, one thing I do want to stop and say is that. How do they do that? I mean, for sure, people know about like injection mold plastics, and they always think in the three d oh you got a form and you inject it in comes out three d what we 're talking about here is layer after layer after layer of material, which could be something that creates a a vein for blood to go through instead of having to strip veins from your body to, to for a surgery there 's all kinds of things, and some of them work better than others right. in terms from, of
3: structures from, from plastics to printing. Cells, replacing ink with sort of bio ink, which has been done by companies like Organova, where you can literally, as I've actually visited their headquarters, design on the computer the blood vessel design, which is the building block for any organ. If you wanted to 3D print an organ, you need to have blood vessels to start with. So you can really design that on the screen. It will then print out with bio ink sort of epithelial cells, the sort of the building block, uh, or endothelial cells, the building block of vessels. Those will form and mature in a test tube and can later be transplanted into a, at least currently into animal models, or be the building block of a complex organ. So as 3D printing matures, it's going beyond just the layering process to other versions of this. Again, there's even folks literally 3D printing houses or buildings, which can be used in disaster situations in public health, all the way to clinics, all the way down to things we use day to day. So there are examples, some of your listeners may be, having used already like hearing aids today the common area is to scan the outside of your ear and literally 3D print the impact some of your listeners may have had the equivalent of braces Invisalign is a Bay Area company that's literally scans your mouth and models and 3D prints out um, plastic models that slowly form and push your teeth so we have 3D printing in many forms today that folks might not even realize. Snuck
0: realized. up on us. That's here, here it is. But what about our bodies? That's the, when we say healthcare, is like, ooh, what parts of my our bodies really either could be or even are today, you know, being attacked, approached, supported, use the word you want uh, with 3D printing? Well,
3: let's go from the outside in. Maybe something most of us are familiar with. You might sprain or break an arm, a leg, or a finger. We wear a sort of cast made out of old-fashioned plaster, which have advantages and disadvantages, but the future likely will be if you're in the urgent care clinic or have already had a fracture, you may scan your arm or your finger and literally almost in real time print the cast or uh, outline for your arm or the crutch handle or to match your hand or your shoulder that matches your exact anatomy. So the folks have already done versions of those that can make orthopedics and recovery from uh, uh, orthopedic surgery better. We've recently seen, actually, a 3D printer that's been sent to the space station. Um, I chair medicine at Singularity University. One of our early student-based teams formed a company called Made in Space. Hard to get supplies to space station. Recently, a company called 3 um, d for md sent the first file up there based on the astronaut's hand to print a little finger sprint. He might have jammed his finger floating around the space station. Hard to wait three months for a supply mission. They could print one that matches the exact example. So that's one from the outside in the orthopedic space. Moving to the inside, a lot of folks, as they get older, might need a hip or knee implant. There's often off-the-shelf versions. But in some cases, you may want that one that precisely matches the anatomy of your knee and your hip. And so there are companies, one called Conformist Biomedical, can literally 3D print out of metal the hip and knee component, the metal component that's most critical to align your hip implant. So those are examples of things that are coming today um, and are sometimes in the market. Moving towards the future, we've seen early versions of when someone has very complex anatomy, let's say they've had tuberculosis and have damaged trachea from TB or cancer, there have been groups in Europe that have 3D printed uh, from the computer based on the patient's CT scans the outline of that new trachea, seeded it with the patient's own stem and progenitor cells, grown those in the test tube, and used those to kind of fix that anatomical defect. So there's a couple examples moving from outside in. And the last one also sort to of mention, still sort of future realm, would be fully 3D printed organs. We have a huge shortage of hearts, livers, kidneys, um, not enough donors, uh, many people on the waiting list. Uh, there are now early work at printing organs, which are complex. It's not just one tissue. So with bioink, some might be the blood vessels, some might be the liver cells, we're starting to build today very small microorgans, and those can be studied to, used to study the disease in the test tube, how do those respond to drugs. Maybe they're even derived from the patient themselves using induced pluripotent stem cells. But in the future, we may be seeing the ability to literally Take some skin cells from you, make your bio ink, and print your own organ. One example in 3D printing that's particularly compelling would be prosthetics. Uh, many folks in the world who might have lost their limb from disease or war or trauma don't have the access to uh, a replacement leg or arm. Now we're seeing the ability with very low-cost printers and free software to make low-cost personalized prosthetics to meet the match the stump of that child that can be reprinted as they grow that can be eventually integrated with electronics to enable them to uh, to to control them in new ways with brain computer interfaces so We can really democratize, not with super expensive 3D printing, but to bring it to folks who need it uh, around the world. Another great example would be many often adolescent women have scoliosis when they're teenagers. Um, They don't often like to wear the sort of handmade scoliosis braces that aren't comfortable and often don't work if you don't wear them. There's a San Francisco company called Unique, U-N-Y-U-Q, that will take your smartphone or a cheap scanner, scan the patient, 3D print a scoliosis brace that matches their anatomy, also their style. They could put their favorite Disney character in there or hearts or their initials. And now companies like Intel are embedding sensors, quantified self, you know, sensors that can tell when the patient's wearing it and how the fit is, how to adjust it, are being embedded with that 3D-printed device, which can really help patients, resist, in this case, with spine issues.
0: One thing I think is important with part of what you were just saying is that we can just print out things – Or sometimes we can print a structure that is flexible and uh, the right shape and size that we want, and then we can lay in organic material, you know, your stem cells, whatever you're laying in, and they end up attaching and growing. and And so it's a combination of inorganic and organic, which together can be used. I mean, this is a new kind of concept
3: right, you may not need to print the full-on functioning kidney or tissue, but when it goes inside the body in the right niche, the right environment, it can grow and the blood vessels can hopefully engraft. Uh, It may be that these, let's say, 3D-printed organs, they may not look at all like a normal kidney or heart, but may function in similar ways or be, um, in in a sense, augmenting the current organs that exist inside the body. So there's a blend Um, we're going to see in some cases before we even get 3D-printed organs using gene technologies to modify pigs and and take humanized organs out of animal farm-type models. Um, but it is biology meets, chemistry meets three dimensions. We're even seeing the first FDA-approved drugs that can be 3D printed. We know that many folks cut pills in half or in thirds. You can't get the dose that's personalized to you. The part of this era of precision medicine may be literally 3D printing your medicine, maybe even at home, to match the dose uh, and your symptoms and your blood levels and, uh, on a daily basis.
0: You brought up the FDA. Typically, it would approve a device, and then they say, okay, that's great. Now you can go manufacture it under a number of government agencies, make sure that it's being manufactured exactly the same. This is different. This is like, okay, the device is good. Now you're going to start making it different for everybody. That's kind of a new concept.
3: It's quite disruptive, particularly – it's one thing if you're printing a hearing aid or braces, pretty low risk. But External. It's yeah, it's yeah. something that's – part of your personalized hip implant or regenerative medicine uh, replacement trachea. It's a bit different. And again, each patient may be different. It may be that we're printing some of these devices in the operating room, quite disruptive to friends in the medical device world, which have a whole long supply chain and quality control. How can we show that something you can print in a hospital, or in a clinic, in the lab is clinically viable? So the FDA is studying these things. They're working with companies. They're hopefully going to stay on the leading edge and not be reactive and uh, Part of what I think is exciting in this age is we can think about the regulatory process different, whether it's with digital medicines or three D printed drugs, medical devices, and beyond. You know, three D printing, digital manufacturing is becoming democratized. You or your high school kid can get a five hundred dollars three D printer today, take free software off the web, and maybe design a little finger sprint or something for your uh, dog who's got a uh, wants a personalized. Uh, Dog bone. <laughs> uh, so you can you can really start to experiment and prototype. It's an amazing technology across health medicine and many other fields where you can literally bring uh, and make something synthesized and and local for pennies on the dollar. And this has many implications uh, from the healthcare side we talked about to China. Are they going to be shipping things in big containers that are widgets you might print for your missing part all the way to how we're going to build our our homes and um, uh, infrastructure in the future?
0: It's going to impact national and international economies.
3: Absolutely. Watch the space and And try it yourself. The future's already here, just not evenly distributed. You can be part of it now.
0: Thank you, Daniel. See you soon. Thanks, Mara. Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. We've now gotten used to the idea that our genes will be decoded for any number of reasons, from an analysis of who our ancestors are to which chemotherapy would be most appropriate for the cancer patient. Still, the current technology has its limits. Now, 10X Genomics has a different approach to decoding genes. I asked Dr. Serge Saxonov, CEO of 10X Genomics, what's the difference?
4: The current wave of sequencing technologies um, It's been around for, I would say, about 10 years, what's called next-generation sequencing. has made tremendous advances around this concept of better, faster, cheaper, producing lots of data, producing it at really dropping, like rapidly dropping cost. But um, the thing is that there's huge amounts of information that has been missing when we're using this technology. And that's something that uh, we've been appreciating more and more over the last 10 years. And that goes to the fact that this existing sequencing doesn't actually sequence the long molecules of DNA that come from biology. They sequence uh, short bits of that. It's called short read sequencing. So you take your DNA molecules and you chop them up into tiny little fragments. And those are the fragments that get sequenced. It's kind of like taking a book and shredding it before you're trying to read it.
0: Take each page and then try to put it back together.
4: Uh, it's actually worse than a page because it gets those are really small segments. It's more like sentences potentially that you get, and then you try to figure out the meaning of. Uh, of the book from the old individual sentences. But you're you re- you're yeah, But they're all just kind of a jumble, right? And
0: that's what bioinformatics is doing. It's like, okay, we have all these little things. That's what
4: bioinformatics of- is trying to do, to the best that you can. That's right. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's information that's there for sure. Uh, absolutely. and so It's tremendously valuable, and uh, people have been making great strides using that content. But this is only a part of the whole picture.
0: Okay, so we have all that next-generation sequencing. A bunch of people are doing it. You guys have come up with a new strategy.
4: That's right. Uh, People have been aware that there is a limitation, um, and a lot of people have tried to work on that limitation by building a new sequencer that doesn't require the shredding, that can read longer molecules of DNA. We came up with a solution that doesn't require a new sequencer, but addresses the problem by tagging the molecules before they go into the sequencer. So you still produce these short... Uh, fragments that can be sequenced by existing sequencers, but you embed a tag in each one, kind of like embedding a paragraph number within each sentence in order to tell you on the back end where it came from
0: you know what this reminds me of like uh, if you're going to have a, a raffle you've got this whole big round of you know wheel of tickets each one has i'm always amazed how do they print these each one has a new number it's like here's your ticket how many do you want here's five and the truth is after we sold all those tickets we could put the wheel back together because they each have a number and they're in order so i sort of had that sense too
4: yeah that's true um that is, I've not thought of that analogy, but yes, you can have it for free. Okay, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Mara. <laughs>
0: but I want all proceeds from the raffle. All right, uh, there we go. <laughs> that works. That works. Sure. So that means that not only are we getting these little short sequences, we can figure out where they go. We have the the complete order or, or, you know, I'm sure somebody's not going to give me back their raffle ticket here and now and here and there But the thing is, now we get a better picture of the order. We don't have to go and try to put all these little separate segments together.
4: We actually have the specific information about where they came from. That's right. What did you and
0: learn about the genome now that you could do that?
4: Um, all kinds of things, and it's, honestly, it's more our customers because we build products for researchers and for clinicians ultimately to use, and they're the ones who are learning things.
0: They're coming back and saying, "Guess what?"
4: Yes, and it's, a, a lot of these things are like fundamental and incredibly exciting. Taking sequencing tumor samples, for example, you see you see changes that happen in those tumors that you would not, you did not guess were there before. That people are seeing rearrangements on the large scale that. Otherwise, to existing technologies look like the two tumors are identical, but in fact they're different and different in pretty major ways, where genes are actually moved around in ways that people had not anticipated, fused and deleted and rearranged.
0: You know, we've been talking about mutations as, okay, you drop some DNA here, you Mm -hmm. put a little in here. You can see that in these little short sequences that, you know, that that move around. What you're telling me was with this, we can see in in cancer, possibly with other Mm -hmm. things, but certainly in cancer, that... They may look okay, Mm -hmm. but, in fact, they've been rearranged Mm -hmm. in order from one cell to another or from From one group of cells to another. That's right. So that we're learning more about what mutations look like.
4: Right. Uh, it, It turns out that there's greater complexity to the kinds of mutations you find, especially in cancer, in other settings, too, than we've been able to see before when you're looking with a very narrow lens, when you have, you know, only the short fragments that you can examine at any given time. Now we're sort of taking a more zoomed out view of the genome and see larger scale things. Now, this
0: equipment is, what is that, $130,000? You know, just to give people a, a ballpark. Right. You're not replacing a lot of the equipment. You're like coming along and saying, no, 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 you don't have to replace your whole lab. We can work with you
4: exactly, and that was uh, that was part of our premise. We think existing sequencers um, are are great; uh, they're they're good at generating lots and lots of data cheaply, uh, fast, but they have this uh, major. Deficiency, and that they have to uh, fragment things. And we, 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 you know, give our customers this instrument for one hundred twenty-five thousand (laughs) dollars. You're very close. Better, faster, (laughs) cheaper. (laughs) Uh, And that's right. They don't have to, you know, uh, change their dramatically change their workflows. They don't have to buy a huge new piece of uh, equipment. Sequencers tend to be a lot more expensive than one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. And it just kind of fits in uh, with what people are already used to doing. That was our philosophy minimal disruption, but a much more complete view of the genome.
0: Well, Serge, thank you so much. Please come back. Keep us updated, won't you?
4: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Dr. Serge Saxonoff is CEO of 10x Genomics. More information is available at 10xgenomics.com. That's the number 1010, 10xgenomics.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.